This week on the Vergecast, the PS5 is here. Andrew Webster and Megan Farouk-Manesh talk all about that. Dieter and I talk about Android 11, what's going on with WWC this year, and then James Vincent joins us to talk about IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft changing their facial recognition plans. That's coming up on the Vergecast now. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the next generation of gaming. I was trying Ooh. to do my game voice there, Dieter. Did it work? No, not at all. You, you got to get you got to get lower. All more right. Excited. Well, we're going to stop that immediately. Hi, I'm Neil. I'm your friend. <laughs> Dieter Brown is here. I'm your constant companion. We have a lot going on in the show this week. The PS5 came out this week. Andrew Webster and Megan Frokmanesh are going to do a whole segment on the PS5 and the games that we saw. That's going to be great. Uh, Android 11 beta hit. Dieter pulled that apart. We got to talk about that. Google sued Sonos for patent infringement. You, you know, I'm, I'm in it. And <laughs> Apple announces going on WWC. So that's all going on. And then James Vincent is going to join us and talk about the spate of announcements we've seen from big companies uh, pausing with many caveats. Uh, their facial recognition plans, uh, selling that software to the police. So a lot going on. Before we start, as always, what week is it, Neli? It's week thirteen. Again, we get a, we just get a lot of feedback about balancing the show between the larger stories in the world. The two biggest interlocking crises in the world are the pandemic uh, and the protests against police brutality. That's the most important stuff. We're covering it all over the site, so I just want to give a quick rundown of that stuff before we go on into all the tech news of the week. It is week thirteen. Thirteen weeks since Donald Trump held up a flowchart for coronavirus testing and a website. I believe it was 4 million Google engineers were working on it. Um, mm-hmm. That's the number, right? Uh, that website still doesn't exist. We haven't heard about it for 13 weeks. Uh, there is more testing rolling out in states. The states are doing it on their own. But that main testing website, 13 weeks, I really haven't seen it. Other stuff on the site, Ashley Carmen and I interviewed uh, the CEO of Tinder, Ellie Seidman, on finding love during the pandemic, on using Tinder, I just want to, if you haven't listened to it, go, I just want to encourage you to listen to it. Tinder's rolling out video chat. And the, the thing that they're doing is they're going to have an AI watching the video chat to prevent harassment. And we talked about how that might work. It is just really something else. In other sort of pandemic related news, uh, Nicole Wetzman wrote about contact tracing programs and how they have to interact with local communities and work on a local level. Contact tracing is one of those things that to manage the pandemic which remains more or less unmanaged uh, to manage the pandemic in the United States. We have to get good at contact tracing. We're going to have to understand it. So check out that piece from Nicole. Then there was also a lot of controversy this week 
about asymptomatic people spreading the virus. The World Health Organization said they don't, and then they walked it back. Nicole wrote a great piece about why it's difficult to do that science. She also wrote a great piece about hydroxychloroquine. Obviously, you know, the president has been saying this is it's worth taking. There's a lot of controversy about it. There is a new study saying it doesn't work. Uh, Nicole just basically wrote about why the speed at which we are doing the science, doing the research about the virus and possible treatments is causing this level of confusion. It is broader context. It just sort of helps you understand what's going on. So that's some pandemic stuff. In terms of uh, protests and racial justice, there's actually quite a lot of news, quite a lot of change happening in this world at rapid speed due to the protests. Uh, McKenna Kelly wrote an enormously impactful piece about Nextdoor, which is sort of the local neighborhood level social network. Nextdoor, people make a lot of fun of it because it's Nextdoor, it's people in their neighborhoods complaining about each other, but they have a moderation problem at scale, just like every other social network has a moderation problem at scale. There's a lot of controversy that they don't train the people who start the local neighborhood social networks. Those networks often devolve into exactly the sort of form fighting that you would expect. So McKenna's story was called Inside Nextdoor's Karen Problem, which is a great headline. Nextdoor then reacted to that story. They basically are mandating that their community leads have to allow Black Lives Matter discussions because some community leads, some of their moderators were not allowing it. And they're proposing a sweeping set of changes to Nextdoor. So that's just great on McKenna. She wrote a really impactful story. We're seeing the change immediately come out of it. Then big companies are doing what big companies do. Apple launched a $100 million racial equity and justice initiative. They put Lisa Jackson, who's the former administrator of the EPA, who ran all of Apple's uh, environmental programs. She is now in charge of it. They're going to invest particularly in the black community. That's a big number. You know, Apple's doing it. YouTube announced. How big was YouTube's theater? The exact same number. $100 million is apparently the number for big companies now. There you go. YouTube announced the $100 million uh, racial equity fund. So there's just a lot of action at the corporate leadership level uh, around racial justice, which is at once good to see, but also needs to be held accountable. It needs to be transparent. That's stuff we're going to be tracking on the site. So all that's happening on the site. I want to, again, emphasize, we know, we hear from our audience uh, that that stuff is important, but they also want us to talk about tech stuff. And there was a lot of tech news this week. So don't doubt for one second. That's our priority. It's the coverage we are talking about. It is the two biggest news stories in the world. They dominate everything. They color everything. It's on the site. Go check it out. Our reporters are doing a great job. Very proud of that work. But there's a lot of stuff to talk about too. So here's what we're going to do. PS5 came out yesterday. You, if you're listening to this now, you, you know that we're coming out late. It's because our normal recording time was at the same time as the Sony PS5 stream. So we held it back a little bit. So Andrew and Megan could do that coverage. The rest of our team could do that coverage. I'm just going to tell you, I am pretty bad at talking about video games, and they are really good at it. So I'm going to step away. Here's Andrew and Megan talking about PS5. Hey, it's Megan for OpenEdge here with The Verge. And it's Andrew Webster. So Webster, we just saw the PlayStation 5. They finally did a reveal event. It did, and it is definitely a video game console. <laughs> okay, so for people who haven't seen it yet, trying to do your best to describe it, what does it look like? Okay, so imagine Michael Bay doing a new Transformers movie, and the like cute little Baby Yoda-style character is a mm -hmm. clam, but it's also a Michael Bay-style robot. <laughs> That's a very strong description. So, okay, we have this new console. It is very different, I think, from what other consoles usually look like. It's kind of like, it looks a bit like a router with like a marshmallow wrapping, but I don't hate it. I think it's actually kind of nice to get a change from, say, like my Xbox or my old PlayStation. Yeah, I'm not 
entirely sure if I like it, but I like that it's not a black box. Totally. So in terms of what we actually know about the PlayStation 5, um, it's not too much beyond specs. Like we don't actually know the pricing, for example. We do know they're releasing two versions, uh, one with a disk drive and one that's digital only. I'm curious what your take is on that. Um, I think it's smart and it kind of falls in line with what um, Microsoft is supposedly doing. Um, as our good friend Tom Warren has reported a bunch, there's likely going to be a cheaper version of the Xbox Series X. And this seems like it's going in the same direction for the PS5. Although I'm curious how much just knocking off the optical drive will really lower the price. So I'll be really curious to see what the final points are. At this point, I think it's interesting to just not have one altogether. I can't remember the last time I bought a physical game. I mean, usually I just download stuff now and then kind of delete as needed. Yeah, but you don't have a very large selection of children's Blu-ray discs either. So that's a very important part. That is actually a good point. I mean, I think also people who don't have a strong internet connection will also need a, a disc no matter what. So it's good that there is still kind of that accessibility. Yeah, they're definitely covering their bases because there's regions in the world where having no discs is not really feasible. Well, it's also interesting, too, because, I mean, the PlayStation 5 is apparently going to be backwards compatible with, I can't remember, if they said something along the lines of just a lot of PlayStation 4 games. And in that case, I think people who still have those discs will probably need it as well. Yeah, that will be very good information to have when they finally clear up how that stuff works. Because obviously that's a huge part of uh, what Microsoft's doing. One of the main reasons to buy into the Xbox ecosystem is that like, you know, your games are going to work across different platforms. So I really would love to hear something about that for the PS5. Well, speaking of games, we did see a lot of stuff they showed off yesterday. What did you think? Is there, are there any games in particular that stood out for you? Yeah, so I mean, I'm definitely, like most people, looking forward to jumping into more Horizon Zero Dawn with the sequel that is for some reason called Horizon Forbidden West because Horizon Zero Dawn wasn't confusing enough. It looks very cool. And I mean, Resident Evil 7 was one of the scariest games I've ever played. So uh, Resident Evil 8 or Resident Evil Village, as it's called, the V-I-L-L is the Roman numeral. It's very important. Of course. Yeah, they all look great. Ratchet and Clank always, you know, bright and colorful. Looking forward to jumping into more of that. I think it's really interesting to finally get a Spider-Man game that will star Miles Morales, although they're now saying it's it's not an expansion, it's not a full game, it's a standalone experience, which we've seen before. Uh, it is kind of a bummer to not get a full Miles game yet, though. Yeah, although, although that being said, like, it sounds similar to Uncharted Lost Legacy, and that's, even though it's slightly smaller in scale, is, in my opinion, the best Uncharted. So I think it'll still be good. I think I'm just really ready to ditch Peter Parker. I'm very bored of his story. I feel like we've seen it so many times, and I don't really enjoy playing as him anymore. Yeah, as, as much as I like swinging around New York. So we also saw a bunch of either new titles or smaller titles that are really exciting, I think. Um, one that I'm personally stoked for, because I am, of course, a crazy cat lady, is Annapurna's Stray. Annapurna, I think, has a really good history at this point with publishing good games. Like, I can't think of a single miss they've had so far. And with Stray, it has this really cool, like, neon-drenched, like, cyberpunk kind of thing, except that it seems like you play as a cat wearing a backpack, which is extremely important. Yeah, I mean, that screams next-gen to me. It's all I want, really. So overall, what do you think this means for the PlayStation 5 and the next gen? I mean, I'm a little a little torn, I guess, because on the one hand, like everything we saw looked really cool, or at least I got what I wanted, a new Horizon, new Spider-Man, lots of cool indies, terrifying new Resident Evil. Um, but the thing I didn't see, I feel like, is what makes this next gen, like why I need a PS5 to play these games. You know, you and I just finished playing The Last of Us Part Two, which is a pretty good game that 
really makes use of the PS4 hardware. And I guess these games don't necessarily seem like a huge leap from that, from what we've seen so far. I go through this with every new console cycle where as soon as it launches, I'm generally a person who comes on really late because I feel like until there are I think it's more than five is my standard. Until there are more than five games that are exclusive to that console, I won't buy it. Because until then, it kind of just feels like building on the same thing I already have. So it kind of feels the same way when it comes to the next-gen Xbox as well as PlayStation 5. I think I'm probably going to wait this one out and maybe like six months or more and I'll probably pick one up. Yeah, I do wonder if this would have gone over different if we could play it. You know, E3 would have been this week. Seeing these games is probably very different from actually getting to sit down and play them. So maybe that'll make all the difference. Who knows? One last thing I want to talk about before we go. So the actual reveal for the PlayStation 5, I think, is interesting because the way the whole video was shot, it feels very like sports car. Check out this beautiful thing, which is much better than whenever they revealed the um, PlayStation 4 Pro and they just had kind of a wall drop down and there was so I appreciate that they've really upped their game here. Yeah, I think in, in a lot of ways, the shift to having these uh, pre-recorded things has been very beneficial for companies. Cuts out all of those awkward moments. At least we still have that to look forward to as we're all stuck inside. So that's it for us. Thanks again for listening. I'm Megan with The Verge, and I report about video games. And I am Andrew, and I do the same thing. All right, that was great. My thanks to Andrew and Megan. I think the PS5 looks crazy. Dieter, you, you mean it looks crazy, right? I, I just hate how much attention it draws to itself. I think it, I love that they went for something. I just wish that they went for something that I felt comfortable having be massive and huge in the middle of my living room because I'm going to buy it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> who are we? I just think it's like the disk drive one to me, it's like GameStop went to Sony at the last minute. <laughs> And they're like, here's a check. We still sell we still sell CD-ROMs. That's our business. That's what we do at GameStop. You need to keep making this one. I think there's a good argument for like used game sales and all that stuff, but never has any product looked more like it was forced to include a disk drive than the disk drive PS5. All right, go look at pictures of it. It's fun to dunk on. Send me your best Photoshops. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we got to talk about Android. we got to talk about Apple. we got to talk about this Google Sonos lawsuit. Lots going on. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
All right, we're back. Dieter. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to me, man? Let's start with Android. Android 11's out. You had the beta. You've been using it. What's going on? I have the beta on a Pixel 4 XL. I think it'll work on Pixel 2 and up. Uh, if you don't have a Pixel, it's coming to a few other phones this summer, but nothing really major. It's like they're they're actually backsliding a little bit in terms of beta availability, in my opinion. But it's, you know, it's the pandemic. Maybe a bunch of companies couldn't get their ducks in a row. Anyway, it's here, and I did a big look at all of the stuff that's in the beta. And to me, the the headline is... They fixed text messaging. No, come, you can't say that. To me. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, well, okay. They fixed the problem that you are going to run into inevitably on Android. And I think if you're not in the US and everybody uses iMessage, you hit on iOS a little bit too, of having three to five text messaging apps that you have to use. So they, they separated out all of your notifications from your texting apps into its own section. And with and that's like fine, whatever. But, but the thing that they did that's more important is the notifications in that section have like their own rules. So you can when you set priority on a conversation, it does something different than if you set like alerting priority note thing on a standard notification. If you set silent on a conversation, it's still up there at the top. And whereas if you set silent on a standard notification, it basically like disappears from your entire life. And what that means is. You can have a bunch of group chats that don't annoy you. You can have notifications from your boss or, you know, your family or whoever break through your do not disturb if you want. And you can actually manage having three to four chat apps, but still have all of them feel like they're in the exact same place. Okay. I didn't quite understand this until I, I like watched the video, but let's try to explain it to people. I'm going to ask a series of dumb questions. So what you're saying is I've got WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and Signal and Telegram and Google's t standard Android texting app on my phone. Yeah. All of those apps, their notifications now go to a special place. Special place at the top of your notification shade called conversations. Do they have to do any work to get there? Kind of. Yeah, they have to they have to support two specific sort of APIs that Google uses for messaging apps. Some already have, some don't. They need to like they need to support like a people API and they need to do one other thing. Uh, but it's apparently not too difficult about I don't know, a, a bunch of the apps I already use already do it. Um, there's a second thing that they have to do, which is slightly more difficult, which is they need to like turn on support for bubbles. And if you've been following Android, <laughs> you might know what bubbles are. They had this in the beta <laughs> last year. It's now official. You know what chat heads are, right? On fa the Facebook Messenger app. Chat heads have been around since 2013. I, I looked up, yeah. like, yeah, it's been a few years, right? Oh, no, it's been seven years. They put it on the face, the first Facebook one, the HTC first. Yeah, so I don't love bubbles. Uh, it's basically, it turns your icon for the, the particular conversation you're having, and it makes it this little floating head that you can move anywhere on the screen, and it sits over on top of your other apps. Um, so what Google's done is they made it an official system level thing. And so you can, quote unquote, bubble your conversations. And... If you are into it, it's actually really cool because if you've got a like a conversation in uh, Android Messages and another one in WhatsApp and another one in you know Signal or whatever, and they all support bubbles, you'll have one bubble that you can have anywhere on your screen, and it has all of those conversations stacked in it. You tap it, and then it opens up the bubble interface, and you basically can just tap through the icons to each one. So effectively, what you get is something that is a single icon that has all of your conversations across multiple apps. So like Google got the benefit of having everything integrated into a single app without integrating anything at all. If 
the developers actually update to support it. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh-huh. the asterisks upon all things. <laughs> How does that work? Like, do you see you open the bubble and then you click on the WhatsApp one? Do you see the WhatsApp interface and you click on the on the on the signal one? Do you see the signal interface or is it Google's UI? No, no, it's the it's the app's interface. And in fact, the default if you just do the simplest basic turn on bubbles when you tap on that bubble and bring up the interface. It, it's literally the app interface inside an Android window because, you know, Android supports windowing because Android supports everything. <laughs> and if you want, you can customize it down and have your bubble interface be something different and lighter or whatever, but you don't have to. There was just a period on desktop computers when the big race was to build a universal chat client. Yes. Right. What What, what was the one that everyone used called? Trillion. Trillion. Trillion chat was like, it like had a, wi- like a Windows moment. Yep. I mean, this is like the early 2000s. And that went away because everyone built their own chat apps and they insisted that they had to build their own features. We have talked about this forever on the show. And now every chat lives in a proprietary protocol inside of its own app. Um, except for RCS, which is a failure. So lesson there. <laughs> it sounds like Google is building a universal chat interface but they're letting the app developers still control the code inside the interface. Yeah, and they're not admitting that they're building a universal chat interface because if they did that, then people might not participate because nobody wants to be integrated and aggregated into a universal chat interface. This is the lesson of the Apple TV app, right? Not that the chat interface, but everyone wants their own interface. Everyone wants yeah. full control of their own app. Uh, and so Google can't... The, the, what they can do, though, everyone needs to be in notifications. So Google can just be like... If you want to be in notifications, you should work this way. And then all of a sudden your notifications become your universal app. If you live in notifications and like like run your phone through notifications, and which is kind of how I do it, at least for like email and messaging, it's great. If you don't like using notifications in that way, um, this is actually like not going to be super helpful for you. You're, you know, you're, you're sort of stuck still in the old way of just looking for dots on your home screen. So you install the chat apps. Their notifications go to a special conversations view. Inside that conversations view, you can say notifications from this WhatsApp thread, they should be silent. And then WhatsApp right. respects yep. that, and then Android handles that, and then you can set all these other priorities. That seems yeah. incredibly smart. It also seems like a new layer of complexity. Yep, it is both of those things. <laughs> How are they managing the complexity? Well, I mean... They're trying. Uh, the there's like if if you've got a really complex mature operating system, you want to keep adding features. But as soon as you add features, it's a mess. Like look at look at the settings in Android 11. Look at the settings in a Samsung phone. Look at the settings in any modern OS. And it's like I don't know what any of this stuff does. What I think they're trying to do is basically put like presets. So if you think of all the notification settings, there's actually if you really look at it, very little that you couldn't do on Android 10. All of the like silent, does silent appear here? Where does the icon go? What notifies you? What doesn't? Does it vibrate? Does it make a sound? Blah, 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 blah. Um, most of that was actually available today if you knew how to dig into the settings and look at all the things. So what they've basically done is they've made presets. So when you hit silent on a conversation, it like runs through this preset algorithm of stay in conversations, don't alert the phone, still appear at the top, blah, 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 blah. If you set something a priority, it does another thing. And so... They've they've kept all that complexity there, but they've made simple sort of macros, I don't know, whatever, to like give you like the basic settings they think you're probably going to want. And I think most people are just going to use those basic settings and it's an upgrade. Um, but there's no getting around like 
Android is a, pretty much unafraid to one mess with settings with every version of Android, <laughs> um, and two, they're like they're they're willing to put compl- a little bit of complexity in front of users and trust that they're going to like follow Google along with these new metaphors. Um, which, as a person who's obsessed with like the different metaphors that companies put in their you know screen operating systems, I, I find fascinating because Apple is also gotten more confident in putting more complexity, metaphorical complexity for users with iPad OS. With iOS, I think there's still a little chicken. Yeah. I mean, there's like a part of it where it's like, we trust the users to follow our metaphorical complexity. And there's also like, we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say what, what, what I think is happening where, but I think the reason that the phone is staying static and the iPad is changing you can, you can make your own decisions. Yeah. At the same time, like Android 11, it seems to be just veering towards a bunch of iPhone ideas. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the gesture stuff in Android 10 was like an iPhone. Uh, the screenshot interface, uh, they, you know, one of the themes is they wanted to pull stuff out of notifications. So they pulled screenshot interface out of notifications. It works just like the iPhone. Um, I don't know, man. What else? Uh, home control is sort of iPhone-esque. It's in the power menu. Um, but it's like, They've, they like given you system level buttons for stuff. Um, and that's to do smart home control. That's to do smart home control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, they're, you know, they're fine to, to be a, a great artist in steel, I guess, is like the nice way to put that. <laughs> well, so you and I had this like minor debate. So the smart home stuff, I turn off, I have one smart light switch in my house, uh, a smart outlet rather, and it just turns on some Christmas lights that the baby likes looking at. So she turns them on every morning and then she's every night. And I turn that off using iOS control center in the home thing every day. Yep. yep. So that that's a thing. So now Google has built something like that where you can like get to a screen that has top level buttons to turn stuff off on right. off. control smart home stuff. Right. That screen also has the button to turn off your phone. It also has like your credit card in case you want to pay for something. Mm-hmm. The idea that I go to turn off my Christmas lights and then accidentally turn off my phone seems bad to me. The idea that I'm in Walgreens and I want to pay for something and I accidentally turn off my phone seems bad to me. But you're telling me that it's actually great. Well, I mean, the the button is like, you know, Android phones are really big, Neela. You got to like really reach <laughs> to hit the power button. <laughs> I mean, Google's idea is that it's like your it's your wallet or it's your wallet and keys. It's the stuff you put in your pocket to control stuff outside of your phone plus power menu. So like the metaphor isn't perfect. Um, and so like, where are the different zones? Uh, where are the different areas that have different like metaphors for what they do on an operating system is really fascinating. And I could like get into it. Do you believe that like this is your remote area for controlling the physical world? I kind of do, kind of don't. It's whatever. Um, I think more important is when you turn off the Christmas lights on your tree or wherever they are, how many button presses does that take? It's a swipe up and a, and uh, you click the home icon and you turn the thing off. So it's a swipe up. You or No, it's a, it's a swipe down from the corner. I was thinking the old control center, but it's a swipe, a tap, and a tap. A swipe, and a tap, and a tap. Mine is a, a, a long press and a tap. And I've got like a bunch of lights. And it's also, if I want to dim it, it's a long press, and then I can immediately just drag my finger on the button to dim it. Um, and so it's it's also conceptually, or not conceptually, it's like, it's easier just physically because you don't have to like hit a target. You don't have to be like, all right, swipe down from this corner. Now hit this button that happens to be right here on the screen and this other thing. It's like, I know where the power button is. I hold it down and then I see the button. I tap the button. So like 
I think Control Center uh, and Home on iOS in general is a little bit better than Google Home stuff. Uh, I think they've just done a better job requiring local control, giving you more options for where the rooms are, not making Google Home settings just completely bonkers. But in terms of like speed to turn on my smart light, Android has definitely won in Android 11. So that's a bunch of interface stuff. Is there sort of technical backend stuff, new features to Android 11 that we should know about? There's 12 new project mainline modules. That's the system that Google uses to directly update your system without having to go through carrier approval. Uh, I don't really know what they are. I haven't gotten a list. I know one of them is the uh, time on permission reset, which is another new feature. So if you don't use an app for some period of time, Google will just yank that app's permissions. Like this app, you haven't touched it in a month and it still has background location permission. Screw that. And the app just loses its permissions. Um, they also stole from iOS uh, one-time permissions, especially for location. So the three options that are offered to apps now are grant location access once, grant it when the app is open, or deny it. And if an app actually wants background permission, it has to like link you to deep into Android settings. So Google's really trying to like get people to stop having background access to sensitive things like location or microphone or whatever. Um, and again, this is like following what iOS does. Yeah. And then there's like the big question of you tested this on a Pixel 4. When will anyone get it? <laughs> 2022. <laughs> okay. Now, to be to be fairer to Google, they managed to get more companies on the beta last year and they managed to get uh, Samsung, like Samsung's the one that matters. They managed to get Samsung to like start updating its phones as early as like a month earlier than the year before, maybe a little bit more. Um, and they've done better. They've done better than I expected them to. But, you know, like when you're starting from a, you know, 500 foot hole, getting up to 450 feet is like, good job, but you're you're never climbing out of that hole, friend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just think back to our Sunark conversation and it's like, it's a long process for the Pixel phone to be a, that's the real answer here. They show us the new software. It is expressed best on the Pixel, but really for most people, some hardware manufacturer and some carrier are in the way. Right. In this country, that looks like Samsung and AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile, right? Like, Yeah, Google's dedication to openness is like some percentage, like Google likes to be open and Android and good for the world and whatever, and some percentage of they have to be because otherwise, like, people will start blocking them and Android won't be as powerful as it is, right? And that, like, applies to this power menu thing, right? So all those buttons are powered by Google Home. You know who doesn't want you to control your smart home with Google Home? Samsung. Or literally, like, it's not available in China. And so in addition to that section being powered by Google Home, it's also just available for other companies to do whatever the hell they want with. So if you get a Samsung phone, will that power menu exist for the Samsung phone or will it still map to, uh, what's it called? Oh, yeah, Bixby. Oh, boy. TBD. Yeah, right. Is Bixby still a long press on the power button? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. He's a, look, he's a plucky, he's a plucky little dog, that Bixby. <laughs> Just puts on his shoes and goes to work every morning. <laughs> All right, so what's the, this is the beta. When is it scheduled for release? There's three or four more betas. It'll come out in the fall with the Pixel 5, uh, or maybe slightly ahead of the Pixel 5. That's I think they've gotten ahead of the Pixel in years past, and then the Pixel gets a couple extra features to wow you. Uh, so that's probably, they'll stick with it. They've managed to sort of get caught up and not be it's too slowed down by the pandemic, but we'll see if that affects things or not. To me, the big question is, where the hell is the Pixel 4a? It just seems like it's delayed into oblivion. And again, like, 
at some point in the near future, we should be seeing some pretty heavy Pixel 5 rumors, and we kind of aren't. So I kind of wonder what's going on. Do you think they just canceled it after, like, Rick Osterloh was like, you didn't tell me the battery's too small on the Pixel 4. I need to check over the 4A. (laughs) I mean, if if the pressure on them is to finally succeed, Mm -hmm. the 4A is not going to be the thing that does that. No, well, it might sell well. So the rumors of the Pixel 5 is that it's not going to go like full-on mega flagship, $1,200, ultra, you know, Snapdragon 865, fastest, most beautiful, blah, blah, blah. They're going to like tone it down and basically admit that like the Pixel 4 was not like ultra super, ultra premium. It was like a fine phone. And they're actually with, the rumor is with the Pixel 5 going to like price it appropriately, position it appropriately, not try and say that this thing is comparable to even like a, I don't know, Galaxy S20 or something. We'll see. But, you know, they're at a, they're at a spot where, you know, Pixel 5, that's like, it'll be their seventh Pixel phone, depending when the 4A comes out. They should have figured it out by now. They really yeah. should have figured it out by now. And I'm tired of hearing, well, we're young. Well, yeah, sure, you're young. But you know who figured it out by five generations in? Like Samsung. Like <laughs> like they yeah. like out like a bunch of people they, they got it. So Yeah. All right. So that's Android. Then Apple this week announced WWC it's happening. We talked about this a couple weeks ago on the show. Right. Google, like it's developer conference season. So we already had Build, which became very developer-focused from Microsoft's point of view, and they separated out all their consumer announcements. Google canceled I.O., um, and they've been rolling out announcements like Android 11 beta. Apple's just virtualizing the thing they do. It's WWC, same as ever, just all happening online. So there's a keynote. It's taking place on June 22nd at 1 p.m. Eastern. I have a little bit of fun news. We're going to obviously live vlog the keynote. Walt Mossberg is going to... Join our life vlog. Hey, that's yeah, great. Conned him into doing it with us. So, uh, <laughs> right, June 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, Apple keynote. We'll just see how they do a virtual keynote. We'll see if, you know, like Craig Federighi is socially distanced away from Tim Cook. We'll just see how they manage it. But they're going to have a yeah. keynote. I mean, that stage is pretty big yeah. if, they, if they decide to do it at the uh, Steve Jobs Theater. So. Right. Are they going to do an empty theater? Many questions about the staging of the Apple keynote. Okay, that's happening. But there's like, rumors that this is a monumental keynote because the rumors are they're going to announce the transition to arm for the Mac. Yes. And right before we started recording, Dieter said, man, we could talk about that for one hour Yep, because we could definitely talk about it for one hour. <laughs> Let's see if we can do it in a little shorter than that. What do you think, Dieter? Tell me about, tell me all your feelings about the transition to arm. I just, I have so many. Um, <laughs> do, do you want me to start with Catalyst? Uh, do you want me to start with like SwiftUI? Uh, so look, we've seen the Mac make processor transitions before, but those were in like different eras, right? And so there's like possible analogous things we could see from like the Intel transition. And it's one of the things that Apple did is they didn't just make an emulation layer and just say, here you go. Uh, they they did this thing. It was called Rosetta. It was like sort of an emulation, sort of not. There's a bunch of layers in the API. So when you make a pr- program for an operating system, you know, you're there's like there's abstractions. And so you like you ask for something and the operating system provides it for you. And a lot of that like asking and providing doesn't care what the processor is. So there are things that can be done to have this like not actually be that 
big of a problem. But fundamentally, like eventually the processor needs to be called by the app. And so who knows how they're going to handle that? Are they just going to straight up emulate it, which is what Microsoft does with uh, Windows on ARM, but they can't emulate modern apps that are 64-bit because blah. Uh, are they going to have some weird in-between option? Are they just going to say, rewrite your app? Sorry, guys. Like there's actually a pretty wide array and everyone's sort of assuming that Apple's got this. Um, because Apple historically has got this. They figured out a bunch of transitions in the past. Um, and I want to be optimistic, but I also want to be really realistic that um, switching a desktop operating system to ARM is not uh, not an easy thing. It's not a fast thing. It's not clear what you do to the existing user base. And it's not clear what you do with existing apps. Because if you buy a Mac, you expect the Mac to run Mac apps. And if when when you start having to add asterisks to that, it gets a little bit dicey. And I'm not just talking like the standard, like, oh, who knows if it'll run Photoshop? Like, there's a bunch of possible weird gotchas for people with with Mac apps. Like, how is this thing gonna run Chrome? Like that's that's a big question, right? Yeah. I mean, it's what is the question for all computers? Is how badly will Chrome run on your computer? So I not to go fully historical here, but Apple has pulled this off before. They switched from PowerPC. Well, actually, they've, they've done it twice. The original Mac ran on the 68K processor. That was a whole system of processors made by Motorola that hit the end of its line. They switched to PowerPC processors, which were made by the AIM Alliance. This is a real thing. Apple, IBM, Motorola. It was like Apple buying chips from IBM was a, a shockwave moment because they were big competitors. So they switched from 68K to PowerPC. They were able to emulate 68K on the PowerPC, so it was seamless. All the apps ran, and then they did that. Then Steve Jobs comes back to the company. They had bought Next. When they switched from PowerPC, they ran, the PowerPC roadmap ran out. Like They basically just like couldn't do the, – it was the G5 chip. They couldn't get it into a laptop. This is ancient history. So they decided to switch to Intel. Steve Jobs stood on stage and said, we've had the secret project in the works in the basement forever – it's OS 10 running on Intel. And I think the thing we are forgetting in that whole transition is not only was Apple transitioning the processor, they were partially along a massive operating system transition. So there was OS, or I think it was called OS 9, Mac OS 9. They held a funeral for Mac OS 9. This is a real thing that Apple did. They had a coffin on stage and they put the box, the software box for classic OS nine in the coffin and they had a funeral for their operating system. Technology used to be a lot funnier is what I'm <laughs> getting at here. Can you imagine like Google holding a funeral for like Android 10? Yeah. Like they're not going to do it, but they, they transitioned their entire operating system to OS 10, which had a Unix kernel, like the whole thing. They were pushing developers to OS 10, stop port your code from the old operating system. The new one. And then along there, they, had the Intel transition. Apple does not have that same moment of we're canceling our operating system. They're not setting a bunch of, and they were much smaller, right? They, they're selling many, many, many fewer computers and at a smaller developer base. They do not have that moment of, hey, in the middle of one big transition, we're going to layer on a processor transition that makes the computer faster. So what you really want is an OS 10 application and to make the best OS 10 application, you want it to run on Intel because it'll be faster. Right now, they've just got what you want is a Mac with a long battery life and high performance. We're going to seamlessly switch the chip in it, and everything will be the same. Yeah. 
Well, so the the question is, can they say everything will be the same? Will they try to say everything will be the same? My strong hunch is that as good as they are at this and as, as much better we think that the ARM processor that Apple can make is going to be than whatever, you know, Intel can make for laptops these days. I don't know that they can say, like, you don't have to worry about it. We got this. It just don't, it just works. No problem. Like, I think they might have to throw some asterisks out there and they might need to throw Intel under the bus a little bit in this. Um, And those are all things that Steve Jobs did in that announcement about the transition. Like, you should go watch it. It is actually, like, Basically, like every Steve Jobs keynote, it's incredible. But it's also really, really instructive to see how direct and blunt he was. Like, here's how this transition is going to go. It's going to be a little rough. Here's how it's going to work. This is what you need to do. This is why we did it. This old stuff was bad. We wanted to make this thing and we just couldn't. So we're going to make this thing instead. And like he laid it out. And um, I don't know, man. I don't know if you've been watching the way Apple does keynotes lately, but uh, they're not fond of saying this might not be perfect. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, you and I were talking about this yesterday. What is time? Uh, we were talking about this, and I just keep coming back to that first Apple Watch keynote the, when they announced it, and like Bono was on stage, and they had videos of supermodels running through Africa. It was It was insanity. And then they had to completely reboot the product and its interface over time. And now it's like a fitness tracker with notifications, right? Like a very good one. I'm wearing one right now. People like it a lot. They're selling a lot of them. But the promise of what the thing could do and what the thing actually were were at odds. That's But that's their mode, right? Like that's Apple's mode. They're very bombastic now. It's fine. They make a lot of money. I'm not saying this isn't a bad strategy for them as a business. But their communication style has definitely shifted from the sort of Steve Jobs mode of, I am aware of all the trade-offs. I have made a decision. I know some of you will be mad at me, but I think it's the right choice to there's only one decision Apple has made it. And this kind of transition does not allow for that style of communication to be perfectly effective, I would say. I also think the open questions around, and the trade-offs are obvious, right? Like we think the ARM processors, Apple's A-series processors are very fast, right? Benchmarks of them on iPhones and iPads suggest they are very, very fast. We know iPhones last a long time. We know iPads last a long time. They seem very fast. They have a lot of headroom. What happens when you take them out of the thermal environment of the iPhone and the iPad and you try to run them at max performance for extremely sustained periods of time in a laptop chassis? We have no idea. Apple is pretty good at this stuff, but we actually don't know. What happens when you take, I mean, what we just reviewed the Mac Pro, which is an Intel processor, AMD GPUs, right? They could not, until just like a month ago, three days ago, five minutes ago, Adobe was not supporting their GPU architecture for accelerated uh, rendering in, in Premiere. Well, they're about to pull the rug out of that whole deal. Yeah, theoretically. Yeah. Is Apple going to be able to make GPUs that compete with AMD's GPUs they insist on using, that compete with NVIDIA's GPUs that everybody wants them to use and they don't? Wide open questions for the Mac. Also, Apple just refreshed all of its Macs. They just did a whole series of, I mean, two years 
the we haven't forgotten the Mac. No, no, Neela. In fact, there is a rumor which I don't think we've posted because like the, the, it's not quite strong enough yet. But I believe it because I want to <laughs> uh, <laughs> that they might refresh the iMac uh, to have it look like a like a big iPad Pro. Um, and I, I I want there to be a, a hot new iMac that's like SSD only and like gets rid of that weird chin on the bottom. Like I want that. So therefore, I choose to believe it, even though like. <laughs> Uh, but like if they announce here is a hot new iMac with a faster new, you know, Intel processor, whatever it is, Lakefield or whatever, it's not Lakefield. It's another one. There's so many freaking lakes. They're all lakes and mountains. Many of them are icy. Five minutes later, they're like that. OK, let's stop talking about that, that new Intel iMac that looks dope. And let's talk about how the future of Macs is ARM and we're going to sunset Intel. Like, I don't know how those fit in the same keynote. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how fast I think their transitions right. will be. And I think my expectation here is that it will take a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has to. The piece that just sort of kicked off all these rumors is from Mark Gurman. Mark Gurman's piece says the entire line will go to ARM over time. Yep. But it does not specify a timeline. That's like the thing. And I this is a moment like we have been waiting. Like you and I are both, I would say, small MacBook aficionados. Right. Like that 12 inch MacBook with one port. As much as I complain about ports and dongles and whatever, that computer is great. It was a great computer. We actually, we have two of them. Becky and I both have them. They can't make that right now. It would just be too slow. I mean, they can't. They try. The MacBook Air that I just reviewed is thermally constrained. Yep. Right. It, it just isn't very fast if you want to push it for a sustained period of time. Like they have run into a thermal problem with their computers. It's, Interesting to me on the Windows side, that does not seem to be the same kind of constraint. Yeah, there are thermal problems, uh, but uh, a lot of a lot of manufacturers solve it by being uh, willing to make their laptops a little bit thicker out of different materials or whatever. They also, I mean, if we're going to talk about Windows, like there, you can go buy ARM Windows machines right now. And they have a, a, an interesting number of benefits, uh, but also like more constraints than we expected. And they're also like not very fast. And so the going assumption is that Apple can do a Qualcomm couldn't and make a fast chip because Apple does that on phones you know, and, and tablets all the time. But, you know, never underestimate Microsoft's uh, ability to screw up an app framework transition. Uh, <laughs> but there are like there are dangerous ra- roads to go down when you are going to try and support both ARM and Intel at the same time, which whether or not they're going to sunset Intel, assuming they are, uh, they still are going to have to support both for a while. And like Microsoft hasn't like managed that very well. And so Apple needs to make sure that it does. So we at the very beginning of all this, you you brought up Chrome, which is like half a joke and half extremely serious business, right? If you make a laptop and it runs Chrome badly, I know people are going to react to this. If you make a laptop and it runs Chrome badly, you have made a bad laptop. <laughs> and that's not because I love Chrome. It's right. Like Chrome destroys my battery life and is slow and is wonky and extend like whatever. Chrome is a aircraft carrier of a piece of software. It's not great, but it is the thing people want, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a, it's the standard. It's, when you get a new laptop, what do you do? You run off to download Chrome and then like Walt tweets at you to download Safari instead. <laughs> like there is like an active effort. Like people like evangelize Safari because Chrome is the default. And it is at the point when Microsoft made the Surface Pro X, which is an ARM computer. They dropped their own web browser edge and they moved it to Chromium so that they could improve the foundation of Chrome 
such that it ran well on their computer, such that they could manage the ARM transition. I don't, I don't know if I'd say that's like the reason, but it's, it's one of them. Sure. Of the 500 reasons to do it, I would say that ranks in the top five. Okay. Right. We need processor independence in the browser that everybody wants has to run well in the processors we choose. So we are going to we're going to more actively control that code base and express the Chrome engine, the Chromium engine and edge. Oh, so you're saying they didn't they didn't do it so that like Chrome would run better. They did it because people want Chrome. We're just going to give them Chrome. But we're going to give them like the Microsoft version of Chrome that I believe. Yeah. Right. There's like a web standards, like whatever. It's all in there. And then I think on next to that is. We there's a chance ARM can build a product like the Surface Pro 10, and Intel can't. Yeah. So if we want to build products like this, we need to be in control of our own destiny. Yeah. Right. And like Electron isn't going away, so uh, we should make that work better on ARM. I mean, it it it's gone away for me on the Surface Pro X. Uh, it uh, I I just run PWAs of like uh, individual app windows, and honestly, I would use Safari on the Mac, except that Apple doesn't let you make single site browser windows to like turn Gmail into an app on your Mac uh, with Safari. It's very strange. Does Fluid still exist? Oh, there's a million different things. There's Fluid. There's there's a whole bunch of like there's newer versions of more modern versions of Fluid that you can get, but it's like a hassle, right? I'd rather just like click turn this into an app in my browser, which Edge lets me do, which Chrome lets me do, which Firefox lets me do, um, you know, uh, go down the line. And for uh, whatever reason, you can kind of do it on like uh, the iPad and on the iPhone with Safari, but you can't do it on a Mac. I just want to be clear. I'm not saying the only purpose of laptops is to run Chrome. <laughs> I'm saying it is <laughs> one of the most commonly used, most popular software products in the world. I mean, it's like it's like a universal, democratic, free piece of software that people use to do the thing they do most commonly, which is browse the web. If you make a laptop and using that piece of code makes your laptop suck, like you've kind of missed a trick, right? And that's mm-hmm. already the case with Macs. And the answer is use Safari instead. Okay, fine. But when we review Mac laptops, I'm like, the battery life sucked with Chrome because that is important information for people to know. If they put out an ARM Mac, and battery life craters because they're emulating x86 already running Chrome badly, like they're going to mm-hmm. be in a world of hurt. And I do not expect Apple's going to be like, we're transitioning Safari to the Chromium engine. No. Because the history is they were all on the same engine and they walked away. <laughs> so there is a ARM Chrome. Like yeah. you can buy an ARM-based Chromebook. Uh, I mean, you used to be able to. They're not very common anymore for whatever reason. But it is within the realm of possibility that um, Apple and Google had a conversation. They seem to be doing that more often lately. And uh, when there's an ARM-based version of the Mac, there will be a native ARM version of Chrome that won't completely crater your battery because it has to run through some version of emulation. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to just harp on, on Chrome here. It just seems like the you go into the Apple store, you buy the thing, you come home. What is a thing many, many people are, are very likely to do? Right. And like it's those kinds of questions and those kinds of trade-offs that Apple needs to answer. I don't think, and I've seen this a lot, like jumping all the way to when will Photoshop be native on Mac for ARM? The people who are buying Photoshop, who are spending thousands of dollars a year on creative cloud subscriptions, they know, right? Yeah. And they're going to keep buying the Intel computers to do their work until it's ready. It's the people who just go to the store and buy a computer to go to college or whatever, who are going to be faced with these trade-offs and Apple has to be able to communicate what those trade-offs are. All that said, I really want this to happen because I I do kind of want to see what an A-series processor without thermal constraints can do. We've been waiting yeah. to see it for years. I do want a new 12-inch MacBook. 
I do not like my 11 inch iPad with the keyboard cover. <laughs> Like, uh, every time I use it, I'm like, man, I wish this was a Mac. Like, I wish I could window these apps. Like, there's a, a bunch of stuff the Mac does really well in a smaller form factor with long battery life would be amazing. I just, I think the danger here is that they don't communicate well. Yeah, that's the main danger. Like, I, and it, there, there is also the danger that they will screw up either the app model or the transition or whatever. Like, we saw them try and get people on Catalyst, and that has not gone well. So they don't have a perfect track record right now in recent history. So I'm trusting they're not going to screw it up, but I am also trusting that they're not going to script the communication. And that's two levels of screw-ups that are going to multiply on each other if they don't get it right. So the risk is very high. Yeah, and I also think that the risk that sort of the Mac application community just decides it isn't worth it is very high, right? If you are... We bring up Adobe a lot, but if you are Adobe or your Cinema 4D or your, any of these huge products that people use and you're being asked to like support a new processor architecture and Apple doesn't seem to like you very much and many of your customers are just using Windows, like that pro Mac ecosystem, it's it just starts to look very different. That said, they did make a big deal out of the Mac Pro and how much of the pros and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So. But if you're a pro shop, I mean, it, this cuts both ways. You, uh, you're you not just a consumer buying a laptop. You're like you're running a business uh, that depends on computers in some way. And you look at the cost of dealing with a processor transition and wh whether or not the apps your team needs are available. And you, you weigh that against the cost of, screw it, we're just switching to Windows. Uh. Yeah. Well, I was talking to a designer, a friend of mine at a big company, and he was like, dude, we haven't used Photoshop in like two years. We moved everything to Figma and I can do all my work in a Chromebook. And he's like, that's just better for me. And like, I, why would I buy a Mac? Why would I care about Adobe? Like there, and that's like a big company. There is a world in which something else is happening next to all of this that we're not paying enough attention to. And like this process actually doesn't matter because everyone's using Electron anyway. Yeah, <laughs> we got to get somebody from Electron. The problem with Electron is there's no like CEO. It's an open source project. So it's composed right. of like multiple committees of people who have real jobs. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get somebody from Electron on the show. Okay. Uh, hey, Neil, I remember when we said we weren't going to talk about the arm transition for an hour. How, where are we at? 55 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about this, uh, this Google countersuit against Sonos. Oh, man, this is so emo. <laughs> no, I'm into it. I love talking about patents. Okay. So in January at CES, Sonos mm -hmm. like came out hard, sued Google. There was a big story in the Times. Patrick Spence was out in the world. He was basically saying, Google, we wanted to use Play Music. We integrated Play Music. Google turned around, stole our intellectual property, put out the Chromecast audio and the suite of Chromecast products. Which I just want to point out is the largest impact Google Play Music has had on the world. <laughs> full stop. Fair. So Sonos' story was Google is undercutting our products. They, they took our technology, they put out their products, they priced them super low because their real business model is selling ads. So they're doing predatory pricing, they're pricing their products super low. And then we wanted to integrate Google Assistant. You will recall it took forever for Sonos smart speakers yep. to support Assistant. They supported Alexa right away. Um, it took forever for them to support Assistant. And they kept on saying it was technical reasons. And then it comes out that what Sonos really wanted was for the Alexa wake word and the Hey Google wake word to be active at the same time. And Google said no. And they fought and fought and fought. And Google eventually said, 
you can have assistant or not, right? Meanwhile, Amazon's on the side, like starting a, a consortium of people who want open access to voice assistants as like literally just a troll on Google. Part of this deal is to get the assistant. Sonos has to turn over six months of its product roadmap to Google. They're already mad that Woof. Google is like ripping off their IP and now they don't want to show them their products. So they file the patent lawsuit. Also, also uh, Google smart speakers, surprisingly inexpensive. Yeah, right. So they, 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 they're. They're copying the products, making them super cheap. Sonos files a patent lawsuit. The patents are on, if you, it, whatever. I'll talk about the patents in a minute. <laughs> I will talk about the patents in a minute. Sonos files the patent lawsuits. The sort of important top level thing to know about the patents Sonos used in that lawsuit are it had previously sued Denon, the home theater company. Mm-hmm. Denon has a multi room audio system called HEOS, which it just doesn't. I don't think most people even know about it, but yep. It's it's the perfect thing for for like like audio bros. He os. He os. It's he os. It's crazy. Denon has it. You can buy a bunch of Denon speakers and you can multi-room them, whatever. Sonos sued them for patent infringement. Sonos won. So they've tested these patents in court. Okay. It's months later. Google told us yesterday they're gonna counter sue Sonos. Sonos is like on fire, right? Like yeah. Patrick Spence was just on the on the podcast, you can go back and listen to that interview. The end of that interview is all about like, there have to be like small companies in America are under threat by the tech giants. He testified in front of Congress and said like, we have to be able to compete. We're, we're okay to compete with big companies. We just want to do it fairly. Mm-hmm. He's mad about something he calls efficient infringement, which is a legal theory that a big company like Google can say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to infringe these patents. We, 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 we're, we know we're going to do it. The cost of paying off the patent infringement lawsuit and the penalty is low enough such that if we win in the market, that's a useful cost. Okay, we're going to pay our way into market domination. We're going to we're going to we're going to break the law. Or we're going to we're going to we're going to steal your stuff, and it'll cost less than the money we'll make by just having sold the things. Yeah. What is the cost of owning the smart speaker market? Some X million dollars to Sonos for patent infringement. Yeah. That's a good deal. Efficient. It's efficient. Efficient infringement. So. You can listen to Spence. He like talks about this a lot. Google is like emo. They're like, our feelings are hurt. It's insane. They're just like, oh, why? They're a huge world spanning global mega corporation. And they're like, why did Sonos say such mean things about us? Yeah. So Google has insisted that they, you know, they, they have all these, they have lots of patents. They buy companies, they get their patents, they file lots of patents. Google is like, we helped them. We assisted them in integrating Assistant and Google Play Music. That's Google's whole thing. They're they're helpful. That's their like motto. Uh, so here's their statement. Google is proud of its more than five-year partnership with Sonos and has worked constructively with Sonos to make the company's product work seamlessly by building special integrations for Sonos. Right. So Google's position is we don't want to do this, but we have to defend ourselves. Here's our set of patents. We're going to sue Sonos right back. Okay. So that's kind of the state of things. I would look at this and say what Sonos wants is to be treated more fairly. They've got, they're an older company. They're not a new company. So they do have this patent library. They've been building and engineering and developing the stuff and patenting it over time. And so, you know, their position very clearly is we just want to be treated fairly. We're going to use our patents that we think you're copying to, as a leverage in a negotiation where we want to be treated fairly. I do not think what they want is to win a patent lawsuit and then collect licensing fees. Well, and Patrick Spence in particular knows better than to think that just having a lot of really great patents because you're an old company is a path to success. He used to work at BlackBerry. Yep. 
Yeah, he knows. He's he he absolutely knows. Spence's response to Google filing the lawsuit is fiery. Yeah. So I, I emailed him yesterday and said, "Hey, Google filed. Here's our story. Do you have a statement? I won't read the whole thing. You can look at us. It's it's long, but I'll just read the the heart of it." As we saw in the past with Eero and have seen most recently with Zoom, Google seems to have no shame in copying the innovations of smaller American companies in their attempts to extend their search and advertising monopolies into new categories. And so what he's specifically referencing there is Eero was another small company now owned by Amazon. It's the way these things go. Google put out the Google Wi-Fi, dramatically undercut the price of the Eero, and then Mm -hmm. made it the first search result when you search for Eero. And like that decimated Eero's business. And then their business went upside down and they had to sell themselves to Amazon. They bought advertisements on their own website to show it as an ad. I do not believe any company buying its own product counts for shit. I'm sorry. Like Google, <laughs> like just, whatever. I will say, I just like, you are right. They they did some really sketchy things. Uh, but at some point, like th- when Google doing a sketchy thing with the search algorithm is the nuclear thing. It's what Yelp has been accusing them of. And it's, it's like, it's the thing that like, once they like can be, once you can prove they've crossed that Rubicon, like all bets are off. Google is fully evil. And like, I'm not saying that like buying your own ad is evil. It's not evil rather. Like, sure. That's right. like, that's not, that's cheap, whatever. Um, but I don't, we can't, we don't have them dead to rights that they actually messed with the algorithm. Right. What they do is they take the 10 blue links, which are the algorithm, which is can't touch it, pristine, organic search, got to be the best information. And they just like scoot it down the page. Yeah, they just And then they put boxes full of Google shit above it. And then so you can, whatever. This is like deep into like Google, angry at Google territory. This is what every company says to us. What he's saying about Zoom is Zoom became a competitor and the Google meet button just got bigger and bigger and bigger in Google calendar. Yeah. Right. And like, they're using their dominance to extend it in other categories. Right. Okay. So that's like the shape of it. What I will tell you is, and I'll write this piece up because honestly, who else is going to write this piece up? When you look at the patents that both companies are asserting, mm-hmm. it will drive you crazy. It will make you frustrated that software patents exist, like in a deep emotional way. So Sonos's patents are like syncing audio streams on multiple devices. Okay. That's hard. They had to figure it out. They got their patent on it. Great. But should they be able to block everybody else from doing it in a similar way? Like, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. That's like a philosoph- deeply philosophical question. Uh, right. Setting up speakers. They have a patent on that. Right. Does the Google product look substantially like the thing that Sonos has patented? Yeah. Well, and this gets into like methods. Like you patent a method. You don't patent the idea. Blah, 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 blah. Right. right. It's like deep in the weeds. Uh, Google's patents are just all over the goddamn map. Like I'll just be honest with you. Like it's a patent on um, one of their patents is literally the sort of the inoperable part of it describes how it's a patent on um, sending wireless signals to an audio device. But the audio device that it's talking about, like the system it's for is for like smoke alarms. <laughs> And it's like a patent on like wireless smoke alarm sensor stuff, but the patent is written so broadly that Google thinks it can apply it to the Sonos wireless speaker. Does that Wild. make you happy? Does like, are, are are we happy that we're at this point with patents? Like, no, there's a patent on search across multiple services. Hmm. Like you've got a bunch of song, you've got a bunch of music services and you search for a song and it shows you all the services on Google says it has a patent on that idea. Are you happy? Are, are we happy that that exists? Like, there's a level of this underneath it all where they the leverage they're using each other against each other is like, oh, I feel icky about all of this. 
Right. Like it's actually dangerous to like start setting precedent on these patents, letting companies do things or not letting companies do things because those patents end up like being kind of important to make all sorts of different kinds of technology. Yeah. And so like that, I'll write up that piece. I'll, I'll, I will take the time to try to explain all the patents are. Whatever. There's a lot of hearings. There's something called a, a marksman hearing or a markman. Sorry, I'll take it again. There's something called a markman hearing where the, the first thing you have to do is argue in front of the court over what your patents actually mean. Mm, great. <laughs> so, like, we're, you're not even at that step of this thing yet. People ask to reply. They have to deny each other. I think all of this comes down to they are negotiating against each other. And right. they, are, they happen to be using patent lawsuits to do it. I think once you step through the negotiation to what happens if Sonos gets very loud about we think this core bit of multi-room speaker technology is a patent that we should enforce all the time. Yeah. Well, I could, you know, right. Like what happens if Google says, uh, our patent on authorizing DRM to multiple devices is operable and we're going to enforce it. That's bad. Like there, there's some, there's some real tricky stuff in there. So I think, I don't know, like, like I said, the, there's the business strategy stuff. I'm pretty clear on where I stand on that, right? Tech giants are really big. Google is, uh, you know, they want to be the adorable, helpful company. Yeah. They are not shy about crushing what's ever in their way. Amazon is not shy about crushing what's ever in its way. Apple is not shy about it. And their feelings are very hurt if you say that they are doing that. To be right. Clear. And, they, and, they, and yeah. they're like, we're open. We only have the patents, so we don't use them. And it's like, well, dude, you're using your smoke alarm patent against a speaker company right now. Well, but I, the, the last big patent lawsuit that Google actually filed that I could find is like 2013. So it has been a minute. That doesn't mean that this is not this is good and they're cool and whatever, but it, it has been a minute. Let me ask you one last question. We we sort of know using lawsuits as like negotiating tactics to get a better business deal. Like that feels fine. Yeah. I don't think that uh, you you might be tempted to think that like Spence's congressional testimony and complaining about Google's monopoly is equally a negotiating tactic. But like even if it is, and I kind of don't think it is, that's like a hard thing to walk back from. Yeah. I I, I, think, I mean, he sent me the statement. Yeah. It's in our story. Go read it. Yeah. Like you can evaluate for yourself how Patrick Spence feels about Google, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> we're mostly sad to see a once innovative company that started the mission of do no evil, avoid addressing the fact they've infringed on our inventions and have instead turned to the strong arm tactics that the robber barons of old would have applauded. Wow. I don't think he's worried about <laughs> conditioning <laughs> his feelings about Google. I do think that, I mean, he said this to me several times. He, I, I don't remember if he said this on the on the show this last time, his point is we can't all just work for four companies. There needs to be some check on the size and ambition of these companies such that new companies, smaller companies, mid-sized companies can exist and compete fairly. Like I said, I'm fully behind that. Anybody who listens to the show knows that's mostly what we talk about. Once you get to the specifics of do I love software patents of this kind? Like the patent I think about all the time, the patent that like helped us build the Verge audience at the very beginning when Apple and Google and Samsung were all suing each other. And we did like hardcore Android iOS patent coverage is Apple had a patent on slide to unlock. Right. Yep. And the patent was insanely specific. And we made a whole video about all the different ways people were getting around it. And it's like, what did that serve anyone? At the end of the day, a bunch of lawyers got paid and it turns out Samsung still made its phones. Yep. And 11 versions of Android exist. Like what did Apple get anything out of that effort? other than being mad, like, no. So I would say I have mixed feelings about this, but I do hope that like, yeah, I would like to be able to say both Alexa and Hey Google to my Sonos speaker. That'd be cool. That'd be a good product to have in the market. 
All right. We, all three of these things we could do forever. We should take a break and come back. Uh, James Vincent is going to join us. We got to talk about facial recognition. There's a lot happening. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. James Vincent, welcome to the Vergecast. Hello, lovely to be here. It's good to have you. It's been a minute since you've been on. We've, we've talked in the past, but uh, if the audience doesn't know, James, you're our AI reporter. There is a lot of AI news happening in the world. I want to unpack. It's actually like the opposite of news. Big companies are saying they're not going to make facial recognition <laughs> technology. So just the quick rundown. IBM announced it's no longer an offer develop or research facial recognition technology. There's some important caveats to that. Amazon has banned the police from using its uh, facial recognition system called Recognition for the next year. Which is oh another caveat? Are you in, is that internally caveat? <laughs> and then Microsoft, which has sort of talked about this a lot, has said we will not sell facial recognition to the police until Congress passes a privacy law. Another caveat, like it, they're all caveated announcements. But uh, just before we started recording, I was saying you do not often see a technology at this stage of development halted in any way because of mm. social concerns. So walk us through what's happening. Obviously, it's in the context of Black Lives Matter and the protests, but walk us through what is going on with these announcements and, and how they work. Yeah, I mean, so I think something that I definitely want to highlight up top is the history of criticism of these systems, which goes back years. And there's a few researchers, particularly uh, Joy Bolanwini and Timni uh, Gebru, who in 2018 published a paper called Gender Shades, uh, which they really sort of provided the first comprehensive empirical evidence that there are racial and gender biases with these systems. So that's been a line of criticism that's been picked up, pushed forward by people like the ACLU. And now, obviously, with the protests across America and greater scrutiny on, uh, you know, uh, police and law enforcement in general, that's now pushed that to the fore. But these criticisms go back years. Um, so it's really important that they're now being talked about and action is happening. As you said, there's been three announcements, IBM on Monday, Amazon on Wednesday, Microsoft on Thursday. But each of them deserves different caveats. Amazon and Microsoft announcements obviously goes together because they're going for a 12 month ban. And IBM's goes in a different slot because they're saying we're going to stop doing this totally. However, I would say that I've been desperately trying to get IBM to answer some specific questions 
um, about the sort of scope of this ban, and they have been um, very unhelpful. Um, I don't know. Yeah, well, you both will have experienced this before when you go, okay, so I have a little question here and I just like a yes or no answer. And how do you feel about giving that? And I'll go, James, uh, we've written a blog post. Um, yes. If you'd just like to read the blog post, that'll explain <laughs> everything. And you go, yeah, no, I read the blog post, but I had some questions about the blog post. And they were like, no, but uh, have you really read the blog post? <laughs> anyway. You know, for a company who who makes software that claims to like understand the breadth of human knowledge and is able to like actually literally debate you um <laughs> the inability to engage in a discussion about its products is uh, fascinating maybe you're actually talking to their debate ai and not to a real uh, human oh my god yeah it, it turns out watson sucks it only generates blog posts uh with ambiguous claims yeah uh, and cannot answer a follow-up so james real quick just uh give us a brief intro how does facial recognition work so facial recognition is based on machine learning, um, which is a sort of technology that looks for patterns in large data sets and then tries to predict or find those patterns elsewhere. In this case, the patterns it's looking for are measurements based on your face. Now, there's lots of different ways that these um, algorithms work, but basically they're looking for, say, the distances between certain landmark features on your face. That could be the distance between your eyes, from your nostrils to the tip of your mouth, between your eyebrows, all those sorts of things. So they will be scanning faces, they will be measuring those little points, and then they will be comparing them to a database. Um, there's different ways that could happen. You might be doing uh, a one-to-many find where you have a face that you've, say, recorded on CCTV and you're looking for it in a big watch list of people. Or it might be a one-to-one -one thing, which is what happens at a passport uh, border check where you have one picture, one face, and you're just looking to see if they're a match or not. Those technologies are implemented in very various ways. You know, some people uh, use them to pull footage from CCTV that they analyze later. Some do live CCTV stuff that's happened in London, for example, and some want to integrate them onto body cameras as well. So there's a lot of different ways this coming up, but you're basically getting an algorithm that looks at your face and looks to see if it matches another. Let's start at the top, right? There was the gender shades paper. There is this just enormous body of evidence that facial recognition systems are biased against gender and race. Just unpack that a little bit. What does that actually mean in practice for people? What should people understand about that? So that means that the same um, system, when it's looking at a white face, when it's looking at the face of a person of color, um, it is going to be just less accurate when it comes to matching identities, when it comes to just simply saying, say, what gender it thinks that person is. These algorithms consistently get lower scores for non-white faces. I mean, it's it's really as simple as that. The, the, the huge, terrifying, scary things is when you think about how those judgments are then going to be used by people with power over your life, whether that's the law enforcement or whether that's a private company many of whom are buying these systems and integrating them, say, into a watch list for their shop. And they are going to start going, well, system says you're on our naughty list and you can't come into the shop. And, you know, what recourse do you have in that uh, scenario? Right. So to, I, I always think of this in terms of the TSA. There's a, a brown man who regularly travels with a bag full of batteries and wires. I have many interactions with the TSA. But I'm in the airport. Somebody's on a watch list. The TSA facial recognition system looks at me gets it wrong has a, because it has a low accuracy score, it will look at me, get it wrong, and then I end up with no recourse saying, I'm not that person. Yeah. Right, because it's an automated system that I cannot see. Exactly, exactly. And at that point, 
it's often the case that when you've been flagged by these systems, then that gives the individuals, the humans, the response, you know, the, the, the opportunity to detain you, to question you, to take your stuff, to look through your stuff. So it gives them precedent. And that precedent is now biased in the way that we, you know, think law enforcement more generally shows racial biases. Right. And this is, uh, to me, the connection to all of this is our systems often just reflect the society in which we live, right? I mean, I, I keep thinking about Tay, the Microsoft chatbot that was like instantly trained to be a Nazi. Like in inside of a day, the the user training that the bot received made it extremely racist. Okay, so that's the big picture. I know you have some questions for Ab. And if you're for the listener, James's frustration with big companies telling you to read it, it's like the most it is the single most common thing that happens. Like uh companies often tell us to make things up or read between the lines so we'll seem smart. And I'm like, I don't want, I would prefer to feel, be very dumb and for you to be smart. And like, no, you be smart. It happens all the time. But here's my read of the IBM announcement. IBM's technology is bad. It isn't winning in the market. (laughs) And they opportunistically took this moment to say, we're not going to sell it. So I don't know. So their their technology is definitely has problems, but they are doing badly and other companies are doing badly as well. It is the, So the basic truth here is that IBM, Amazon and Microsoft, none of them are winning in this market right now. None of them are the big player in law enforcement facial recognition. The big players are companies you've probably never heard of. They're NEC, they're Jamalto, they're Idemia, um, and they're new players like Clearview. I'm glad you brought up Clearview because this has been, like you saying they're not winners in the market, this has been one of my big questions. There's been a lot of questions, especially around Amazon, you know, they're the ones who uh, have been, I think, maybe criticized the most for uh, problems with uh, race and facial recognition. But they said, we're not going to sell the police for a year. And I was like, do, do you sell the police now? And then Clearview, <laughs> Clearview AI came out with this like victory lap statement that's like, unlike Amazon recognition, our stuff is great and the cops can keep using it whenever they want. It was very strange. Yeah. So the thing is, I don't think anyone has a clear picture of exactly how many agencies in which states are using which company's technology. We really just don't know that. We know that some big companies, NEC, I mentioned earlier, they're a Japanese firm. They have, uh, they're used by, I think, more than a thousand law enforcement agencies in America in 20 states. But we don't have exact numbers for each of these firms. Um, Yeah, that's just something we don't know. So there are these smaller, well, NEC is not a small company, but in in sort of our consumer world, uh, we don't think about them much. Then these other smaller players, Clearview is a new company that was very quiet until recently when a bunch of reporting sort of thrust them onto the scene. They're not stopping. So if Amazon, Microsoft, IBM aren't winning in the market, if if they can't walk away from the police and then get the thing that they want, right? Microsoft wants a privacy law. Amazon presumably wants something to happen such that selling recognition doesn't get it in trouble anymore. Yeah. IBM is probably hoping some, some, somebody works really hard to make Watson good. But if they're just going to lose to these smaller companies that are not as constrained in their behavior, what is the benefit of walking away from this market for them? I think it just reduces public scrutiny of them. And the other answer is that they will win in plenty of other ways. Facial recognition is one part of the services that they can provide to these uh, law enforcement agencies, to ICE, to CBP, to all these sorts of um, government institutions. They 
may not have to they may not want to sell the algorithms themselves because that's obviously become a pressure point in terms of scrutiny and it's very obvious to see okay this is the point where this product fails we know it's bad they just go okay we don't sell that we will sell everything else though how about that we'll give you the servers and we'll do the cameras you know uh, amazon for example may have stopped um, its facial recognition stuff for a year with law enforcement, but it still has Ring, its uh, home camera system. That has, as far as we know, based on reports, contracts with more than a thousand law enforcement agencies. And they encourage owners of Ring system to pull footage from Amazon's cameras and give it to law enforcement agencies. And those agencies could then just get a company like Clearview and use their facial recognition technology on it. So even if these companies, IBM, Amazon, Facebook, step away from facial recognition algorithms, they are still in it to provide the infrastructure that supports those technologies. So facial recognition itself seems like uh, just a very uh, well-publicized sort of tip of the spear to a technologically enhanced police force. I I think I've seen a lot of people saying we should just ban this technology entirely. Again, Microsoft has been, again, with caveats saying we need laws. I think their goal is to help write the laws because they're a big company and they spend a lot of money on lobbying. But they have just been very clear. There needs to be some legal boundaries over what facial recognition can and cannot be used for. Is it appropriate or useful to say, actually, we should just not have this technology at all? I think banning it entirely would be incredibly difficult. But I realize as soon as those words are out of my mouth, I sound like a defeatist. Do I think personally that the world would be a better place if facial recognition was never used by law enforcement? I actually think yes, because I think it destroys a certain level of public anonymity that has so far seemed to be pretty useful for our countries and how they deal with things like civil disobedience, for example, in protests. I don't think that that should necessarily change as quickly as it's currently changing. Now, is, is it is it possible to ban it? As I say, I don't I don't think so. But it is possible to regulate it. So last year, for example, Congress started looking at some legislation called the Facial Recognition Technology Warrant Act that was introduced to Congress last November, still being discussed. And that would basically mean police have to get a warrant before they can use facial recognition for public surveillance. That would include a 30-day maximum period for those warrants and exceptions for time-sensitive cases. Now, something like that, that feels to me like an incredibly sensible, you know, who who would really argue with that as an intermediary step? I think something like that should be the target for now. But I know plenty of people would disagree with me and say, no, we need to go straight for an outright ban now and forever. And what is their argument for straight to an outright ban now and forever? That there's no good way for this technology to be used in how you know, how our countries currently operate. Uh, there is just this presumption that we have a certain allow- a level of anonymity. You know, we have that online if we want. People say that's being eroded. And we have it when we go out onto the street, whether that's walking into a shop or whether that's going to a protest. There is just no need for this sort of technology to track us every second of the day. If you think about sort of the revelations we've had in recent years about ad tracking technology and how our movements across the web are being tracked and how that information is being traded very freely by private companies who are just using it to target advertisements at us. That is a direct analog for me to facial recognition and surveillance. You know, if you're being tracked across the web, what's to stop you being tracked across the city? Now, once that information is out there and it's, say, being 
traded and bought and sold by private companies? What's to stop it being taken by hackers? What's to stop it being used by um, oppressive governments? I think there's just a very, very sensible argument to be made that you're just future-proofing yourself against some future tyranny. So I, I think about this in the context of consumer devices, right? The, there are any number, ring cameras, Nest cameras, Google Home Hubs can sense when you're there, can identify you to some degree of accuracy, can personalize what they say. If you ban facial recognition entirely, that category of things goes away. Is there a, a potential for a split to say, oh, it actually is useful for my video doorbell to tell me that my family has arrived home, but it's so dangerous and so inaccurate that the cops are going to make mistakes that we don't want that to ever happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's what that's what I think is the right way forward for this, which is just law, which is legislation focusing on use by law enforcement and related agencies. Very importantly, that includes uh, ICE and Border Patrol as well, because they often get separated from domestic law enforcement. But actually, the way that they use this technology is just as likely to be uh, dangerous and harmful to people. The the legislation thing, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Microsoft, Neelai, because like, it seems like that's their tack with every complicated issue relating to technologies. Well, we definitely want a law. And sometimes we'll like pause if there's there's not a law, but we definitely want a law. There should be a law. And it's like, okay. But with facial recognition in particular, uh, it just seems like it's like the most obvious example of there is no way that the legislative process, definitely in the U.S. and maybe elsewhere, is able to come anywhere close to keeping up with the pace of technology. And so when a bunch of companies say, well, we would like a law, uh, it sort of feels like, well, sure, you'd like a law. But by the time that happens, like the entire landscape is going to have completely changed. Um, you know, little companies I've never heard of uh, are providing facial recognition to hundreds of police departments. It's great that uh, these bigger companies are pulling out. But by the time we get a law, who knows how capable these smaller companies are actually going to be? Right. And what data sets they will be accessing or have accessed. I think that that combination of factors is uh, very complicated. I think, you know, we've had Brad Smith, the president and chief legal officer of Microsoft on the show. I have been in rooms where Sasha Nadella talks about it. I mean, they're, Microsoft's general position, general posture is always, it would be great if the government was functional, right? Like they're like, like that, that's just like where they operate from. They're a huge government contractor. You know, they're in a massive fight with Amazon over uh, supplying the defense department. Like it's in Microsoft's interest for the functional government that it has a good relationship with for any number of reasons. They need somebody to sell to. <laughs> Right, like it'd be great if our client worked. <laughs> like, what if our what if our what if one of our biggest clients was efficient and bought more stuff? Is like a good position for Microsoft to be in. I think they take the the social responsibility aspect of it seriously, but I think that's why they come at it from there. I think IBM, you know, the caveats here are like it sounds like they're still going to sell specialized facial recognition software. I mean, if you read that statement, it says they will not sell general purpose facial recognition software. It does not say they will not build some tailored application. And that those caveats, I think, are all related to eventually we will have some boundaries that are agreed on. And then inside of those boundaries, we can build a business. I think the bigger question for me is, well, the technology is still inaccurate. None of these companies have said, we're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that we don't confuse two black faces, which is the problem that is leading 
all of the energy uh, to ban the stuff. I would I would say that these companies have invested money in that. I don't think they're going to solve these problems uh, certainly not quickly. And that it just if those problems are solved, that doesn't stop these technologies being used in bad ways. But IBM has created what they called a diverse faces data set. Um, Amazon has sponsored research into into you know improving those those accuracy rates. Um, but that's still that's still in. in you know, leads us to the question, okay, so you now have a perfectly accurate facial recognition system. Is that a good thing or not? That is worth diving into. Right now, the problem is we know it's inaccurate and that has led to we should not use it because it will lead to the same kinds of policing outcomes we already see that are biased across race and gender lines. If it's perfectly accurate, there are still an enormous set of problems. I think the question is, how do you even determine whether it's perfectly accurate? Is that is that is there an industry standard metric? Is there a test? Is there something that people will agree upon? So the sort of as well as the work done by uh, individual researchers, um, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, which is a you know U.S. government body that standardizes um, uh, your uh, weights and measures, for example, they do tests on facial recognition algorithms, but those tests have been criticized. So those tests are done where you have faces that are very well lit, they are well framed, and they are sort of on a nice, neat background. And you get faces of um, different ethnicities, et cetera, et cetera, different demographics, and you run those through those systems. However, researchers who are involved in this uh, say that that's, that's an easy test in many ways, and it's not the same as doing this stuff in the wild. So one example with NEC, as well as uh, selling to uh, American law enforcement, they also run uh, facial recognition trials in London, my, my home city. And an independent analyst, analysis of their algorithm, one of the very few, found that they had an 81% error rate, which is staggering. 81% of the matches their system found were incorrect. And what is the, the recourse for that? Right. If, I, if I'm a purchaser of some software, how do I even know that? Right. I mean, if I open Microsoft Word and 81% of the characters I type are wrong, I'm like, screw it. I'm not using Microsoft Word anymore. But if you're just a if you're a shop owner and you're using the NEC software, how would you even know? Well, yeah, if you're a shop owner, you wouldn't. I mean, the trials that the NEC has been doing with the London Metropolitan Police, obviously, they have been uh, designed to find out these sorts of things. And I should mention that the Met would dispute my figure of eighty-one percent. There, they think there are <laughs> they think there are better metrics that surprise, surprise, make the software look much more accurate. And they that's how they want you to judge it. But um, the the underlying point here is that. We are still finding out exactly how these things work in, in the wild, as it were, how they work in real life. And we're still finding out about these effects. And to me, that supports definitely a moratorium on the use of this technology, because there are just so many unknown uh, questions here, unknown answers, sorry. So I want to end by zooming all the way out um, and talking about action movies. Well, I thought films. you were going to go for general um, AI, so this is great. No, yes. Is, will, James, will a general AI exist on what timeline? That's just that's what you ask AI reporters, right? Uh, no, I want to zoom out to action movies and thrillers. I feel like so much of the sort of common perception of facial recognition is a scene from a Mission Impossible movie where they finally catch the bad guy's face. 
right? They finally find out who the bad guy is and they get one spy photo of him at a casino in Monaco. And then they hit the button and they find out exactly where he is in the world in 20 seconds because he walked through a train station and they blow up the train station. That makes for a very good movie, but that seems like that's the promise law enforcement is making. It is, does not seem like the promise they can keep. And I'm just wondering how much of that sort of common pop culture perception of what the systems can do is coloring the actual policy conversation. I mean, I think it, it, it must be. It's hard for me to sort of um, know exactly what, say, police are thinking when they uh, when they use this sort of equipment. But as an AI reporter, it's something I bump into all the time, that the, the pop culture expectations set the bar incredibly high for what these things can do. Um, and I, I think actually what these systems do do, even if they do it very badly, is they offer an answer, Right they will say, we found a match. And sometimes people just really want a technology that says, yeah, here's what you do next. Here's the next thing you do. And I think that in itself is just, is, is incredibly dangerous because, um, you know, I, I don't want to get into the technical details of it, but one thing that's caused a lot of arguments is this idea of um, confidence thresholds, which is basically how certain should a system be before it gives you an answer. Amazon has been terrible on this, basically. They've changed their answers on what they think is a decent confidence threshold uh, many times. Um, And we've had reports from police departments saying that they just crank it down because they just want an answer. And I I think that's such a, you know, that's something that technology, we love it for. It gives us answers, but we don't often or we don't enough uh, scrutinize exactly where those answers come from. You know, if I were a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not, but if I were, I would would suggest that all of these... uh, very sexy, very accurate, very exciting scenes of people uh, using facial recognition were planted to move the Overton window of what we think. But I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so instead what I I will say is uh, I don't like Batman anymore. Because there's that one scene in the movie. I mean, that is the plot of of The Dark Knight. exactly. Oh, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, Yeah, it turns it off in the end. Right? He's like, no one should have this, but except for me right now. <laughs> Which, by the way, is a wholly consistent and reasonable policy position for any individual to have. Any, Like, everything would be fine if I was the supreme dictator of the tool. <laughs> like, that is how I feel. <laughs> like, oh, I should just be in charge. Twitter's moderation policy is a problem. I'll just do it myself. Not scalable. So, James, what happens next? Um, I mean, the fight continues, I think, is what a lot of the people who have been criticizing this stuff would definitely say. This, for a long time, companies have uh, been, I mean, just not acting entirely. They've been acting disingenuously about this, basically. They've been burying their head in the hands, their head in their sands a little bit and refusing to address this problem. This is now, you know, even though these are 12 month bans, they're obviously temporary and Amazon, Microsoft are obviously waiting for the new cycle to move on before they return to this stuff. It is still a staging post to invite greater scrutiny, discussion of what these systems mean and whether they should be a part of public life or not. And I I hope this conversation continues. All right, James, thank you so much. We'll have to have you back. It sounds like we're going to have to have you back soon. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thanks to Andrew Webster and Megan for just making a part of the Vergecast. It was good. That was great. Thanks to James Vincent for joining us. We love your feedback. You can talk to all of us. Andrew is A underscore Webster on Twitter. Megan is Megan underscore Nicolette with two T's. 
James is at JJ Vincent. Dieter is at Backlon. I'm at Reckless. Love hearing from you. There's a bunch of newsletters you can subscribe to. Dieter's newsletter processor is where he subtweets Apple about being humble each and every day. <laughs> uh, that's out. You can subscribe to the interface with Casey Newton. There's still a lot of 2.30 action. Casey just interviewed uh, Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel. That's in the interface. Go read that. That's at theverge.com slash newsletter and theverge.com slash interface. Subscribe to those. On Tuesday, we're back with the interview show. McKenna Kelly and I interviewed Senator Ed Markey about his proposed national broadband plan, expanding broadband. It's a wild interview. It was usually when you interview like a senator, right? You're like you're in person. He's got like a fleet of PR people or you're on the phone. Yeah. There's like 45 people on the call. McKenna, and I just talked to Senator Markey. He was just in his house by himself on Zoom, just freewheeling. It was, you'll hear it. <laughs> He's a character. That's coming on Tuesday. We're back on Friday with a chat show. A lot going on. Love your feedback. Hit us up. We like hearing from you. Rock and roll. Paul. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.